Welcome to the Santa Cruz Coffee Break. If you're watching on YouTube or listening on Apple Podcasts, please follow, hit the like button, or any subscribes. It really helps us with the algorithms. Santa Cruz Coffee Break is independent of Santa Cruz Guitar Company, and all opinions are those of the speakers. Santa Cruz Coffee Break is produced by the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum. We invite you to join us on the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum at SCGCPF for more fun. Now, let's get on with this installment of Santa Cruz Coffee Break. Welcome, everybody. I'd like to welcome you to the 24th uh, Santa Cruz podcast for guitar players, for the Guitar Players Forum. And today we have Scott Law. If you don't know Scott, we're going to introduce you to a really hardworking musician in the trenches. Scott's an American singer, songwriter, record producer, and multi-instrumentalist known for his work with guitar and mandolin. Based in Portland, Oregon. How long have you been there, Scott? Been um, eight, let's see, 18 years this year. Has been a professional musician since 1992. Scott's an authentic performer, widely known for his distinctive abilities to elevate the potency of a collaboration in lead or supporting roles on electric guitar, acoustic guitar, or mandolin. A student and devoted fan of American roots music and psychedelic rock and roll, Law's sound is strongly influenced by the stylistic tributaries, songbooks, and fearless improvisational approach of bands like the Grateful Dead, Allman Brothers, and their jazz and RB influences. Scott's own music has sprung from his resources, his sources predicted on deep listening, lyrical melody, and implicit freedom of musical expression. I love that. Wow. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> Besides, besides fronting his own projects, Scott's a regular contributor with legendary Grateful Dead bassist Phil Lesh and his rotating Phil Lesh and Friends cast and other lineups. Law has contributed as a monthly artist in residence at Lish's Terrapin Crossing venue in San Rafael, a great facility, by the way, if you ever get open again and get a chance to get down there, get there and see it since 2014 and he also joins fellow TXR bandmate J Ross James and co-leading and Psych Roots powerhouse electric band Scott Law and Ross James Cosmic Twang. His band Broke Down in Bakersfield was formed in 2011 and Banjo Killers with national banjo champion Tony Furtada. In 2013, the Luthiers of the Santa Cruz Guitar Company honored Scott by introducing a new, a special new instrument to their model line, one that Law helped design. Having become recognized for its tone, balance, and power, the D-Law signature model is a mahogany dreadnought guitar resulting an exacting replica of the acoustic instrument Scott plays, now holding its place among other esteemed signature models produced by the company. Scott's performed and recorded and collaborated with many of the artists of mention across the spectrum of American genre, including Phil Wesh and Bob Weir, as we mentioned, the Terrapin family, Nikki Bloom, Peter Rowan, Daryl Anger's Republic of Strings, John Schofield, The String Cheese Incident, Traveling McCoy's, McCurries, sorry, The Traveling McCurries, Melvin Seals, Melting Pot, Broke Down in Bakersfield, Tony Furtada, I'm tired already, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> good lord what's up how are you welcome scott thank you very much wow um that's uh that's impressive really it it, it looks like one thing's led to another yeah you could say that yeah that's pretty uh, much how it worked how it has worked <laughs> <laughs> 
how'd you get started? Why guitar? Uh, well, I mean, in the very, very earliest time that I can remember, uh, there, I remember there used to be this commercial. I wasn't allowed to watch TV very much as a kid, only during certain times. And I grew up in Southern California in Glendale uh, through kindergarten. Somewhere in that time, I really got out of my mind I wanted to play the guitar. And part of it was because there was a commercial, which was, uh, what was it? It was like quick picking and fun strumming, something like that. And it was it would come on during during the time when I was watching the TV, and I really got intrigued. Anyway, I was uh, fast forward. Family moved to New York. I was, you know, at that time was not. In, I mean, there were not. My parents didn't know what to do with a kid who wanted to play guitar whose hands were, you know. I mean, I was a tiny little kid. They said, "He's a little, tiny little kid. We don't have guitars for that." And that was, you know, that was that. Until I got bigger, I couldn't. Then when a few years later, maybe I was eight, I don't know, we moved to New York and a guitar did enter the picture. I took, I took lessons. There was this nylon string guitar that we had, which I never was into the nylon string sound. It was the steel string that I was interested in. I do remember that. Um, but I took a few lessons, learned a few chords, uh, the open chords, you know, but I mean, it was like, egg timer, music book. I don't know what I'm doing. How do you practice? No support. There weren't music camps. There weren't other kids around playing guitar in my world that came around. So that kind of went away. I got into drums and I was a big Beatles fan. And the thing was, is I heard a lot of different music. Like my father was a, a audiophile, had a really incredible stereo system. And uh, there was music going all the time. And at night, I mean, at night, you know, when he would get home, that would be the unwind. So, so I don't know. The music fire, I think, just kind of started way early. And uh, so, you know. so was it your dad that, that introduced you to this kind of wide variety of genres and styles and artists? To yeah, totally. That's I mean, great. Yeah, no, like the first... Like the first name of an artist that I ever put together, like in my mind was Johnny Cash. Like, oh, that's the name of a person, like that's a singer, you know? I totally remember that, you know? Boy Named Sue was like my favorite tune. <laughs> and I was like, and, uh, and the first guitar player I really became aware of, like, oh, he's a guitar player, was Chet Atkins. Oh, and, uh, you know, Merle Haggard, like I heard a lot of country music, a lot of blues music, you know, and gospel music, Bessie Smith, Mahalia Jackson. Um, wow. I, I a think lot of Louis Armstrong and, you know, jazz music. I mean, so I was, it was interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I got, I got kind of, I got introduced to a lot of, my ear got introduced to a lot of stuff. And then the Beatles at one point, finally, it's like he takes out, breaks out the Beatles record, you know? And if, and, and if, <laughs> an, and, and if he's an audiophile, was it Rubber Soul or was it Revolver? No, remember? actually it was, um, 
Sergeant Peppers. Yeah, yeah. I still have the, you know, I have it now. The original pressing and the original pressing of the White Album. Yeah. 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 It, 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 when you really listen to that stuff, especially if you have a good stereo, I mean, you know, I think my first stereo was like this thing I got from working weekends as a trash guy, you know, and found it, you know, and, and it was, you know, horrible. I mean, it just sounded horrible. But if you had an audio file for a father, you got to hear those parts and you got to hear that production. Wow. Right. No, it's really true. And like, especially those, those old country records, I mean, like the Merle wow. Haggard records and the Buck Owens, I mean, on that stuff was made for stereo, you know, for, and vinyl. I mean, it was just, just incredible. 15 so, inches per second. And, you know, really, oh, yeah. 15 IPS and that, you know, the Buck Owens thing that when they were making all those records, he was living in Bakersfield and they were driving every night after working at, at Capitol. They were driving home to Bakersfield. Over oh, the, wow. Over the grapevine three times a week. Right. Get home. What? What? The old yeah. grapevine without the five? I mean. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's like, <sighs> hey, that's it's always <laughs> the extra mile. My it's Lord. Old. Wow, it's music. Those guys were trailblazing. And uh, I think Buck Owens, like, I mean, he was prowling around up here before he went down there. Um, there's a, a lot of, uh, and him and Don Rich. Yeah. Yeah. You've read Buckham, right? No. Oh, it's great. No, I need yeah. to read that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it's really great. It's um, it, it really part of that whole you just get an idea of how far ahead of the game he was. Oh yeah. And yeah, that whole time period, I just, I just finished reading. Um, wait a minute. What is it called? It's, it, oh, the birth, the birth of loud. I think it's called the birth of loud. And that was just like a kind of a history of the, the arms race. I mean, I'm, I'm totally, uh, this is my editorial. It was like the arms race between Fender and Gibson. And, uh, and really though, but it's really, really cool. Like how the evolution and, and the cultural and market significance of both, you know, the rise of Fender and Gibson and, and Anyway, just fascinating how it was all wound up together too. And some of the artists like Dick Dale and Jamie Bryant and, and the country guys like with the whole, you know, the Fender situation, especially. Anyway. I, I'm reading Stone Alone uh, right now, Wyman's, Wyman's book. Oh, and cool. It's, it's really amazing how they had literally no gear. I mean, he was put in the band. He was asked to be in the stones because he had an extra Vox amplifier. <laughs> right. <laughs> he was five years older, six years older, but he had an extra Vox amplifier. So they'd have him in the, they had him in the band because of it. But, you know, like, well, yeah, let's, all those guys saw that opportunity. You know, those, the uh, um, manufacturers saw the opportunity yeah. and uh, just heap, heaped crap on people. You know, I mean, certainly different today but 
Well, but, uh, it was all just exploding. It was all f forming new, the whole industry. It was nothing. It was just rising out of the, you know, rising out of nothing in a sense. The record industry, everything was like coming together. Yeah. And, you know, the, what we know today was born during those times, you know, in terms of rock and roll industry, the concert industry, musical instruments. I mean, Fender was going along just fine, but when the surf thing hit, he was a household name. Boom. I mean, like Fender was everywhere. It defined what electric guitar was to the average Joe, you um, know? Yeah, really, really. In, you know, and then by the mid sixties. Yeah, so, really amazing. Now, anyway. Before before we get too far away, I got to ask if you still have all that vinyl, Scott, are you a vinyl file? When you want to listen to music, do you pull out the vinyl or? Uh... Absolutely. Okay. And, you know, I have to say, I love streaming for the random access and the convenience, you know, which for me as a person who likes to cue, just cue something up really quick because I want to learn that lick or I want, I need to hear that tune again. It's awesome. But when I listen, uh, I mean, in every day, you know, I try, I really, that's one thing that's happened during pandemic. It's like, I'm prioritizing quality listening, like I used to do, you know, like where I sit down with my cup of coffee or whatever, and I've put on a side or two of a record and just sit still and enjoy it and let it wash over me and think about the one thing that catches my ear. And maybe I'll go and try and find out what that is, you know, pull up a guitar. Or maybe not, you know, just sit there and enjoy it. Enjoy it. Yeah. That, that, yeah. If we've all done that, we'd probably all be in a better space now. That that's actually a pretty healthy way to deal with it. It was it has really been good. And and I mean, you know, my theory, at least for me, I just, I love, there. it's a physical reality listening to analog. It's, it's something you can feel the difference. So I appreciate it for that. Um, and um, I had this really weird thing happen during the pandemic where I've, I sort of happenstance, you know, met this fellow. Um, it was through a, an instrument you know, an instrument sale situation. And we became, you know, we be just kind of became friends. And he's, he's uh, going through, you know, kind of downsizing and he's an older guy and he's downsi downsizing his record collection and his music book collection. And he's been just super sweet and like laying all these records on me, wow. you know, and stuff that's like, I mean, amazing how few, I don't think there was maybe a half a dozen records that I already had. Wow. wow. But we're talking like, you know, three moving boxes full of records. Two of them, two of them, I'm, uh, one of them I'm, I'm going through. I mean, some of them were like, you know, pretty ratty and not, not priority for me. But the other two, two really good boxes of incredible records, chock full of guitar players. I'd never like, I don't have their records yet. I don't have the vinyl George Van Epps, you know, oh. like all the Johnny Smith and Kenny Burrell. Like I have some of that, but it's been really nice. And Benson, like I think I have every Benson record now. <laughs> <laughs>
So is that is that a, is that a physical part of your day where you're saying from this period of time, you know, like I know Eric walks every day, you know, walks. I know he walks and listens. Is that a physical part of your day where you're saying, OK, I'm going to listen to something every day? Yeah, I, I mean, right now, because because the schedule has been just so easy to just kind of, you know, and cur carve everything out. And it's pretty much the same every day. So, yeah, I mean, literally in the morning, that's that's what I've been doing is, uh, you know, working through the vinyl and having my coffee and maybe I'm right, you know, doing some other work, you know, on, on my on my computer or whatnot. But a lot of times I'm just kind of sitting there just staring at the wall, listening. It, it, it takes me down about six questions to, so you're a kid, you're in New York, you're figuring it out, you're starting to hear some things and things like that. How'd you, how'd you take it further? Well, in, in fourth grade, they gave us a choice what to play, right? You know, and I think I put... <laughs> They would, guitar wasn't available. Yeah. And for whatever reason, I was like, violin? Okay, so some sort of spark of the fiddle early on, uh, or drums. And they ended up putting me on drums, you know, and, but I, I didn't have a great experience in the structured zone there. Uh, and that was an elementary school. But then again, you know, kept being interested. And by the time I was in, junior high, I wound up in the stage band playing drums. Like I just kind of kept at it. And then in high school, you know, I had a, one of my best friends, you know, was this hilarious guy who was like every side of every spectrum, funny and football player, but he was also in choir. And he was like, dude, you got to join choir. The teacher's amazing. And so I was like, you know, oh yeah, right ever. You know, we were playing rock and roll by that point. I was still playing drums. And then uh, some transition kind of happened in there where we sort of had a pile up of drummers and a, and a glut of drummers and a need of guitar players in my little neighborhood band. And I was the only one sort of gutsy enough. I still had some sort of primal memory of a few chords, I could, in some respects, because of my natural rhythm, make a little more sense out of it than, uh, than I would have otherwise, because I think the drums were helpful. And um, started chugging out the guitar. Anyway, get, get into choir in high school, and I really did respond, like the, the choir director was really awesome, and he kind of a lot of respects, you know, he recognized I had some sort of natural talent. I had mega enthusiasm. And it was the only thing in my life that was really sparking me like high school to me was just like, oh, boy, like I didn't do very well. Like, if I wasn't psyched, I wasn't gonna do it to or only to minimum standard. And when I did got into the music, and it was made clear that I had support, you know, like my parents really supported me. It took them a while to come around to that, but they did. And because uh, for a while there, it was like baseball. You're not going to play, you know, when I was a little kid, all I wanted to do was play baseball. So, <laughs> so anyway, through that experience, like, and reassurance from, 
you know, my, my high school choir director was like, okay, here, make a deal with him. Like he, during summertime, he goes and takes college level music theory course and see if he can hang, like see what he, you know, what's the, and we made a deal. And so I went during the summer between my, uh, I, I guess it was between my sophomore and my junior year, or maybe it was my junior and my so senior year. Uh, I took a music theory class from Jim Knapp up at Cornish Institute, Cornish College of the Arts in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just got my mind blown, like completely blown. Like I got to figure this out. Wow. So, so then I was like on like, and it was really about guitar and, but yet I was playing electric guitar. Like I was playing Grateful Dead music and Stones music and Hendrix and cream and whatnot like in the garage with my pals so cool but what <laughs> I, I, I i i i can't think of of a thousand podcasts that i've listened to that choir that's really unusual I oh mean, yeah it, to, to to set a fire in a teenage boy about yeah. music it, the choir thing wow that, that that teacher must have been phenomenal he was awesome jim taylor yeah and uh he was you know i mean we we won choir competitions like he and <laughs> what's a choir competition well you know they have like the county you know the the state competitions and whatever and the high school thing and you go and you tour around and do these things like he was really good at getting the most out of people he was a really wow. good musician. And um, uh, yeah, it was like, that was an incredible experience. And then he, uh, we also did the, uh, you know, I tried out my junior year, didn't make it into the jazz. There was like a jazz choir, you know, the jazz choir was like, I mean, That'd be I wanted to play guitar as much as anything. And so I was in stage band on the one hand, and then I was also in uh, in choir and then jazz choir my senior year. And yeah, I mean, I got like took theory classes and just tried to like get better. And that really got me into jazz. Like I was like, okay, you know, the rock and roll music that I was playing was all about group improvisation. And the root, mute, the root of that is jazz, you know, to me, to my yeah. way of thinking. And so I wanted to go to follow the route, you know? So I went, you know, started taking, I took some guitar lessons uh, from a guy, Max Block, who's uh, just spoke to a few months back. He's up, still up in Seattle. And, uh, you know, I got really introduced to like chord melody guitar, Wes Montgomery, Joe Pass, you know, um, Eddie Lang, you know, uh, some of the obviously George Barnes, you know. So you, so you still have your varsity choir robe? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that was a good, I mean, you know, it was a good experience. I was asked to sing, you know, he really pushed me to sing as high as I could. So I was, but I and, and taught me the basics of singing enough so all these years, fortunately, haven't hurt myself. Oops. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Hey, He's hey. the door. Somebody's hey, in the door. Hey, hey. It's okay. Yeah, I haven't yeah. gotten, uh, gotten, <laughs> gotten hurt or anything. So that was all a good experience. And uh, yeah, that paved the way. Anyway, then I just kind of kept at it. 
And I, at some point there, I mean, I was still in high school. I was like, I'm going to school and, you know, operating out there in the world. Uh, it, it was one of those situations where it's like, well, I had a good chance of doing okay and getting into, into music school. So, and it was really what I was mainly interested in. And it, if I didn't go for it, you know, that would be something I might miss later on. So that was one of those crossroads in life, an early one for me, which was like, just go for it. So what, what were you playing back then? What was your kind of dream rig at that point in time? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I was an electric guitar player. I started uh -huh. out and I didn't really even broach the acoustic instrument until 1990-ish, uh, you know? So this would have been 1980, 81. I was, you know, so I'd have been 10 years in before I got an acoustic. I was playing uh, all manner. I started going through guitars like cordwood. Like I didn't know what I was looking for. You know, you want to get the thing that Jerry Garcia is playing, but nobody's getting that. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings it to the whole, you know, the whole thing about like, well, what is it you actually looking for? Do you even know? <laughs> you know? did anybody at a guitar store ever say that to you well i would think, oh, i mean guitar store i thought he was talking about life yeah well well that too <laughs> yeah i mean the guitar stores like what that was such a, a an activity we would do back then like on the weekend you know me and my my bass playing best friend you know hey let's go to guitars etc in seattle you know, yeah. Um, you just go bum around and look at gear and think, well, what would work? What would be cool? I mean, I don't know. The first electric guitar I had was, a, I mean, when I switched from playing drums for real, it was like the neighbor friend down the street gave me this Lyle hollow body, like a 335 with one of those Lyle weird Bigsby's on it. You yeah, know, the flat cheap, bar. Pretty cheap <laughs> guitar, but you know, that was my entree. It was like playing, you, you know, it looked like we were playing Credence, <laughs> you know, we were really playing it right. I don't know. <laughs> um, it's it's yeah. funny talking about, you know, hanging out with your friends in high school and school and going to guitar stores and such, because I have an old, old high school friend. And from time to time, it's like, oh, man, do you remember that 335 we saw down at Leo's back in? <laughs> right? Totally. So many vivid memories of that. Yeah. Um, but, to, you know, what ended up, one thing that ended up being a guitar that I still have from that period, you know, was um, right as I was graduating from high school, my mom lent me some money to get a this black strat that was made by Philip Kubicki. And Philip Kubicki was a guy that worked at Fender. Um, and the neck on this thing, it's like a an early 60s, you know, with the small headstock and it's made out of basswood, so it's really light. Um Anyway, great guitar. I still have it. Like I played that for years, you know, it's hardtail, hardtail Strat copy. Hmm. Um, any, any, yeah. from, any from that period that you regret 
not still having? Mm, yeah, I mean, there's a few things I wish I still had. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was a there was an L5 back there that if I knew now, if if I knew then what I know now. No, I mean, just about what I would have done with it. I, I had unreasonable expectation of that guitar. Um, and there was also an ES-175 that I, I ended up selling to a student, which felt really good. And then I was talking to him about buying it back from him. And then the, the conversation went dark and that guitar got sold. So I was bummed. <laughs> <laughs> I think they do come back. I've had two guitars come back in mm -hmm. the past in the past four months mm. that I, I never thought I would ever see again. Wow. And, and one of them, I walked into a music store and it was hanging on the wall. I mean, I just, I went. That's kind of mind blowing. It was really mind blowing. I mean, I just looked at it. I, I, there was a, a nick in the, in the nut and I, I, I knew, you know, I, right. I knew this guitar and why I ever sold it. I have no idea. And I just walked in and looked up on the wall and there it is. And I, I'm like looking at the guy and I said, where'd you get this? Because it, it had been a year and a half since I sold it. I mean, it, I had no idea. And huh. the other one, I had a road guitar for about 10 years that was um, a Gruen Honer. Right. In the 90s, Gruen went with Homer and designed these things. And I kind of lost track of where it was like eight, 10 years ago. Right. And when I, we were talking before he came on, um, I just took Richard down to Southern California. The guy I had lunch with shows up with this guitar. I had left it at his house like eight years ago. And he shows <laughs> up and he says, here's your guitar back. Nice. <laughs> it's like, yeah, <laughs> I love Bonus. this thing. I love this thing, you know, small, yeah. small jumbo. Great neck. I'm a, I'm a, I love this thing. What's the matter here? Why did I ever get? Why did I leave this down there? I don't know. <laughs> um, so what? What was your first, you know, acoustic guitar that you got into? That you know, or what motivated you to pick up an acoustic guitar and go that route? Well, uh, uh, actually, I was I was you know playing nothing but rock and roll and. And I started finding myself in the in the position to play like other gigs, but kind of more scaled down gigs, <laughs> acoustic gigs. Like it would be way make way more sense. I don't know. My ear, I was just kind of like, I was feeling a little bit like, I'm here to master this instrument, and if I I feel like I'm leaving something out if I'm not checking into acoustic world. I mean, I was in my early twenties. I was just kind of getting going. And I was thinking like, I was attracted. I had always been attracted to, you know, good songwriter, folk, rock, uh, 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 folk, country, blues, bluegrass music, you know, musics that had acoustic elements. So anyway, uh, I kind of, and I think I was right. Like, be before I played acoustic, um, like I I feel like I was pretty limited. Like since playing acoustic, my electric playing is expanded. You know, there are things that you learn from the acoustic instrument 
that uh, transfer really well to any any form of the guitar, and some on the electric that don't, you know. Um, so anyway, I mean, honestly, so there was like both a, a artistic motivation, you know, and then there was also like an actual opportunity motivation, you know. I had I had been in a band, like in one kind of rock and roll band, it was a little bit of a you know, situation where it was like, is it going to be all or nothing with this? Or am I, what am I doing here? Is this all or nothing going to put all my bricks here? Or it was getting to be time to split off and kind of keep cultivating all the possibilities. And so that was kind of it, you know? Um, and what did I end up doing? I think the first or first one I got, I got a Takamini, um, like a D18 or something. Worked out on a couple of Yorma, Yorma versions of, you know, turned out to be Mississippi John Hurt tune, you know, and uh, then I went, oh, wait, I should listen to Mississippi John Hurt. So I listened to Mississippi John Hurt, and then like, oh, I, oh, and uh, Reverend Gary Davis, you know, same thing. Like, oh, what the, you know, then it was on. Then it was like, okay, now it's on. So it was country blues for a while. Like I wanted to learn how to finger pick. I was hanging out with a guy up in Seattle, Jim Page, who's a wonderful singer songwriter. He's just amazing. He's been uh, going on uh at Pike Place Market there, he was like famous, infamous for busking at Pike Place. But anyway, he's an incredible fingerstyle guitar player. So I was motivated by him, you know, and kind of hanging out with a crowd up there, kind of pursuing that. And then, uh, boy, a few guitars went by. Like there was a, a moment of a Santa Cruz that went away. There is a moment of a couple different Martins. Um, I finally landed on a D21, like a 50s era D21, but I never got comfortable with the neck. And that was sort of the moment where I was like, maybe I need to rethink this because this is a great guitar. Like it sounded awesome. Um, I wasn't super comfortable with it. I also wasn't super comfortable with like having such an expensive irreplaceable instrument. Like I was thinking like, maybe I should be thinking about something that's a little, um, you know, it's not like a historical loss if something happens like with an old, you know, with something from the fifties or something. And that was like an interesting challenge, like find a guitar that you still want to play like that. And, you know, so anyway, that's kind of what started the whole search, which landed me at Santa Cruz, you know, with oh, yeah. Santa Cruz to begin with. And, uh, yeah. Nice. I see you. Uh, have Richard, I, I see. talk me down. I'm feeling bad that he's talking about historical instruments from the 1950s, because that just doesn't sound that old to me. <laughs> well, <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that I had it in, I think I had a sense like maybe that was a little, you know, 
I, I'm not sure now if I'd feel the same way, but honestly, except it was like, I don't, I'm not a collector so much. Like I have guitars around that I use. I really want guitars that I'm going to use. I feel bad if there are instruments lying around. So, um, and I feel so fortunate in my life that I've been able to do this at all. I have to say like one thing has continued to lead to another, but the fact that I'm even like worrying about what guitar I'm going to play is, you know, kind of a joke and I'm really grateful for it, <laughs> you know? I, I, I think we've, we've all been been blessed by music in, in, that, in that way, what it's done for us is, you know, just giving us an opening in, into that. I, I, I was watching something um, on YouTube of you and I was watching you finger pick. And I was thinking, I was listening to what I was hearing and I was watching you finger pick and I was going how does he do that because it sounds like a flat pick to me I mean I wish I could remember the the, the piece I've been watching but how'd you develop that that finger pick flat pick is that the Garcia influence of the way he played or uh well I'm it <laughs> I don't, know I don't know exactly what part you're talking about, but I definitely employ a few different strategies. And, um, you know, hybrid picking is one of them, you know, when you've got the flat pick, but you're also using these fingers. Um, that happens. Straight finger picking. One thing that's been interesting, I, I mean, and honestly, it's like, yeah, it's an interesting question because everything to me is in such flux and evolution right now. Um, I've been onto a thing. I, I, the last several years, you know, I've gone in and out of like kind of working on these Jerry Reed tunes. And the thing I notice about Jerry is like, he sort of has a lot of stuff sort of, it's already rigged up for hybrid picking because he mostly will like, he'll curl this thing up and he doesn't use it. He mostly picks here and, and mostly these guys. And that's where the melody strings are. So then that makes it easy. Then when you just flip over to hybrid, you're not adding or subtracting anything. It's already there, but it's weird. That claw thing that they, you know, they yeah. the claw. So I thought that was interesting. Garcia, of course, he had this going on because of his finger. Yeah. So that's another, you know, so that's another one though, where the melody note, it's more the melody note. The melody notes really up here, I've found. So anyway, I've been kind of switching over to that. And on the flat pick side, like now I'm into this, like trying to get the, I'm, I'm trying to sort of uh, navigate the intersection of bluegrass uh like you know the the, the down pick the 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 g run uh what do they call it uh um uh what is it uh the rest the rest stop and basically like i think that there's like a, a there's an intersection of like good downstroke oriented bluegrass rhythm guitar playing and the feel of that as you're passing through the strings uh and gypsy picking Gyp, quote gypsy picking i don't know the thing where every time you change a string 
it's a downstroke, right? So you're down, up, down, up. But as soon as you change a string, you recalibrate to down. And the same thing in both directions. So it becomes like when you're going. So anyway, I'm like, I'm in that world. Like at this point, it's all a mess. I feel like I took the, the engine apart and it's all over the garage floor. I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> I like that analogy. That's pretty <laughs> part of it. Part of it was I spent a couple of months in the pandemic, like early on, I was so disoriented and I was just like, yeah. And I was kind of messing around, like trying to play, play a chord melody guitar, like learn some, get, get back into some standards, you know, like, learn autumn leaves in a new key and just try to actually remember how it goes. I don't know, play over changes. And I started just playing with my thumb. And then I start, you know, go back to Wes and you're listening to Wes and you're like, he's doing that with just his thumb. And you know what? He hardly ever uses his thinky on his left hand. Yeah. And you watch the, the uh, Manoush guys and gals, you know, they play a lot with just those strong fingers, those first three fingers and just little things noticing. It's like, okay. So all those downstrokes playing with the thumb and trying to get relaxed and get a tone and all of it. Like, guess what? Pick up a flat pick, boom, transferable all that pick direction stuff. Like you just forced yourself to organize things in a way that would work with the fat direction happening. You know what I mean? Mostly, mm -hmm. you know, we're all, I mean, it's like, I, Wes had an up thing. I'm not sure what that's about yet, but, uh, but you know what I mean? It's like, so I'm really, I'm in a place now and I think uh, it's just where everything's been sort of exploded and I'm open to possibilities. I want to see if I can hear more stuff and actually play it. Well, during the pandemic, you've put out a, a number of, of YouTube uh, videos, um, yes. which, you know, have been quite enjoyable. In fact, uh, I think I noticed you have at least three Santa Cruz's you use in those videos. Um, that beautiful Brosman Pro as well as your guitar. Um, yes. So you're, you know, you're obviously out there doing some stuff while all this is happening. You know, can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, in the in the immediate like, you know, rush of what is going on here, uh, it became pretty apparent to me that, uh, well, people are going online and they are they're watching shows and this is a good thing for folks. Like actually this is amazing that this is happening because we're able to get together in this virtual way and people are doing that. And so I was like, okay. And we were, you know, it's like, okay, get on, get on going, did a bunch of live streams. It was a little bit like scrambly, like desperation, you know, in a way, if you recall that time, nobody really knew what the hell was going on. Yeah. And no one was really trusting everything. I mean, anything, anything. Yeah, anything. And anything. anything at that time, especially because of all the other pressures that have been going on. And anyway, so found a, found the, doing a lot, regular live stream on my, my, my friend, uh, who's got 
a, a Facebook page, which is called Deadhead Land, which was, you know, it's like a community page that people all across the country, he's been doing this sort of, you know, he's been printing up t-shirts in the parking lot and, and <laughs> being um, like kind of a guy who documents shows because he goes to a lot of shows for years, decades even, 20 years now. Um, He'll go to go to a show with his camera and get a couple tunes, you know, before at Terrapin or whatever, or maybe the whole night, you know, and then he'll put it up on his website. Well, then then it became live streaming. You could just do that. So he's been doing that forever. Like I know the guy every time I'm playing at Terrapin, you know, when I'd go down there to Terrapin Crossroads, Brian would be there documenting uh, anything, you know, related to what was happening. Been up. Uh, doing a live stream and keeping it going every Monday at 4.20 Pacific time on the Deadhead Land Facebook page and on mine. And uh, it's been really, um, I mean, that's been part of what's been kind of holding my world together, like have something musical to work for toward every week. And I remember in the beginning of this all just thinking, oh my God, really, we've been reduced to this. This is really weird. This is super weird. Like this, I'm not built for this. You know what I mean? That kind of narrative going through my mind. <laughs> it was just such a bummer, you know? But then I started to realize, wait, this is actually meaningful. I, people, I'm getting energy here. And people, you know, were very generous and like, they're not going out to see shows, but they're popping a few bucks in the tip jar. And it was like, this seems like a meaningful thing. Uh, and it's hitting on all the levels. So let's keep it going. And then I fell into this, you know, I was like, well, it was pandemic and I was coming off Terrapin hot, you know, like, which was, you know, I go down there for a week every month and I don't repeat a song, you know, and I play every night, every, every day and sometimes twice a day sometimes three times a day, wow. <laughs> you know, we do sets. So I got into, I fell into this whole thing, which was doing uh, no repeat covers. So I entered, you know, I played three, two or three or four of my own songs on a set, rotate those through, but also just keep expanding this universe of cover songs that I'm, you know, interested in, aware of, able to, or have played. And so that became this really interesting repertoire deep dive. And I just, I just stopped the no repeat cover thing at 666 tunes. And, uh, <laughs> but I'm still going, we're up to 673. I mean, I'm just not, it's not like, that's not the prime mover now. I'm just trying to like put a show together that makes sense every week. <laughs> I, you know, I got to say that that was that was the one feeling I've always had about you is, is you know, rather than the question of, of if you were stuck on a deserted island, what album would you take? It would be like, if I were stuck on a deserted island, I'd want to have Scott Law there. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Tad. Right on. <laughs> it feels like that. It feels like, you know, there's. There's so much, I just love music, you know? And I, I see the common thread and so much of it. And, um, you know, so it's like, and I'm just eager to learn and to, to, you know, master the instrument and hear 
and be able to play what I hear, you know, that's just always been the driving force. And I don't know, just kind of follow, you know, as things unfold, I guess. Well, yeah, so much of what you play is just so enjoyable and approachable. Um, you know, we, we have done podcasts with a number of guitarists that really blow you away with their technical proficiency and their expertise in certain areas or whatever else. But you seem to just cover everything and, and do it in a way that you just it's just enjoyable to listen to. And, and, and like I said, you know, on a desert island, it would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for that. That's a really nice thing that you said. I appreciate that. That's well, I think we need to we need to spend a little bit of time talking about your signature guitar, how you oh, yeah. got developed and, and what it's all about and, and, you know, where you're coming from in, in this design. Uh, OK, well, you did mention that there that there is uh, you've caught at least three uh, Santa Cruz guitars and the first one that 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 I wound up with was a custom build based off of some experiences that I had with other instruments that I had, you know, other Santa Cruz instruments that I had played. And that was a, that was a Rosewood guitar. And Richard just like, you know, that experience was sort of what bonded us, I think as friends and kin, kin, kindred spirits of guitar talk, because Talking with Richard about guitars is about the most fun thing you could do. <laughs> this is the point of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, that was a whole development of idea and concept and everything. And then this guitar comes along and it just completely blows me away. And what really blew me away was like everything that everything we asked of that design to happen is what was executed. And that to me was remarkable, like to the point of exactitude. Um, not even, I mean, physically, yes, because we all know that these instruments look so perfect, you want to just eat them. Ah. <laughs> but <laughs> but, but um, it was like the concepts that we had been talking about sonically and everything. So, uh, a couple of years goes by an, a situation where I'm playing, you know, in a playing situation that makes me think, you know what, I see where having a complimentary uh, mahogany version of a dreadnought would be really handy because sometimes the fat, the little bit of fatness you want in the mix of the balance of things. And sometimes you want a little bit of the speed the transient speed of mahogany and a little less of the low stuff. Um, still want the punch, but I was like, you know, what, what could we do here? I wonder if we could do something, Richard. <laughs> and, uh, and anyway, so then that became a very exacting conversation, which turned into an, I mean, he was just like, he had a response for what that recipe might look like. Uh, in the even in the initial conversation when I was asking him for look I need a I need something that's like a d18 kind of you know that's sort of the platform foundation we're going for but um, a little rounder up top a little more balanced overall like you know needs to be able to play 
bona fide, I mean, as bona fide as I can get it in a bluegrass context, but, but also I want to be able to, you know, kind of be rangy on it, do whatever. I play everything, right? So uh, he immediately had the idea about it. And, uh, you know, the ideas about the build that kind of make it what it, what, what it is. And the thing is, is we weren't, we were just talking about a guitar, you know, uh, we were making a guitar for me and we made a guitar for me. And again, the same thing happened uh, where it was like, you know, basically everything that we talked about occurred. And um, even in this, you know, in the sound spectrum and it, and it was, and these are new guitars, man. It was like right out of the bucket. It was like, whoa, like really good. So anyway, um, a, I played that guitar a lot. And over the next 18 months or so, I pretty much chewed through the frets. And so I brought them back to the factory. I was down there. And I mean, as the story goes, it was like, I think the next NAM or something, or it was some period of time after that, um, where, you know, those guys were like, you know, this is actually kind of a hit in guitar. And asked me if I'd be interested in sort of, you know, if we put that forward as a signature model, which I was completely blown away by. And yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Well, the guitar itself, I mean, what makes it, I mean, it, what helps it accomplish those things, you know, it's a, it's mahogany guitar and, uh, but the, as I understand it, you know, the, the bracing, is kind of a hybrid bracing. It's placed sort of in between the extremes and it's very, the guitar at the top because of the way the bracing is fashioned and placed um, and it's all hide glue and red spruce bracing and all that um, is uh, it's really stiff in the middle, but really loose on the edge. So it's like a, a speaker, like I mean, the, the top of guitar is a speaker. So you can imagine like all the different ways that you might balance out those extremes, you know, how soft it is in the middle versus the outside. Or So that's uh, a lot of what's going on with it. And uh, it's great, it's loud. I mean, it's a very loud, punchy, uh, punchy guitar that it never gets too hashy in the high end and uh the low end is clear it's substantial you know but it's clear it's not a boomer like you know like a rosewood type nice yeah and then you also have the brosman i know because i saw that in the videos what else uh what else do you have there that uh floats your boat uh i i mean i actually have one other santa cruz guitar a little o29 which is uh -huh. one of the one of the early ones, which is super fun uh, for finger picking and like you know like uh, country blues and stuff. I really like it for that. Um, and it has a uh, a friend of mine. There's a fella I met in Italy in uh, Milan in Milano. Um, uh, Max Di Bernardi, and uh, he's an amazing finger style player like you know been playing guitar since he was born pretty much and uh american styles and anyway he 
he hit me to a thing which was put a put a, a 14 on the high string. Like I used 12s on that guitar, but I put a 14 on the high E and it really makes it punchy. It's like playing those melodies, you know, when you're playing like country country blues stuff. So that's a fun one. It's got a nice V in the neck. Nice. Nice. I, I other guitars kicking around, but that's, you know. <laughs> I remember the first time I think I met you was the 35th um, party at uh, that winery. And it was you. Oh, yeah. And it was you and um, uh, Bill Nershi. Yeah. And they had brought up you'd been there like a two days or something like that. And they had brought up about 15 guitars from the factory and they were all sitting in this room. And I remember that I don't think you had been to bed. I think you guys had been up just playing cause you were just grabbing a guitar and they had glued Bill's signature guitar neck that morning or something like that. And Richard brought right. it up. Richard brought it up with him that day. But, but I just remember, you being in this room with all these instruments going, let's try that one. You know? Yeah. Let, let's play that one now. You know? That's why, that's how I ended up with that 029. Yeah. You know, I was like, that was the one we were playing. I was like, you know what? This is a groovy guitar. Yeah. It was... um, there were a lot of groovy guitars there. Like, um, yeah, for sure. That was a really interesting experience to be able to, you know, you really can think about how guitars blend with each other like voices. And, and that was really, you know, that was kind of my part of it is sort of the impetus for having both choices, you know, the rosewood and the mahogany. Cause I mean, you know, we would try some guitars and it was like, okay, that's cool. But then you try others and the combination is like, oh, that's like, you know, that's working. Yeah, it was it was it was obvious it was obvious that night as you guys and that that afternoon as you were rehearsing for the evening and stuff like that it was it was really obvious that that and now that now that I look I look back on that you guys were intertwining what you were playing I'm I'm not blowing this up your skirt but this Julian Lodge Chris Etheridge thing that's happening right now. I think they picked it up from you guys because <laughs> <laughs> you, you guys were on a whole nother, a whole nother planet with just your listening to each other and finding well, space, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think, I mean, that's the goal, uh, uh, finding the space, I guess, and, and listening to each other. And I mean, that, that to me is, uh, well, especially when you're in a small, like like a duo situation where you can really like, it's, it's, it's utterly like, you have to do that. Like you really have to get the weave going, you know, or you really, you know, and, but in all contexts, I mean, it's really how I see music, you know, is, uh, um, and I think, you know, a lot of the scene of folks that have grown up around, well, jazz music and Grateful Dead music, blues music, bluegrass music. I mean, you know, 
everybody has a role and a, and a place and finding that place in the music that, you know, there's a spectrum of frequencies. If too many people occupy the same frequency, you know, then things thin out. But when you can get complementary thing going, everything gets more depth and movement and it's like water. You know, I really see music in that way, like, like water oh. in the river, from the river, or when you're out watching the tide. You know. Nice, nice. Well, I, I got to ask now that you've got the engine broke down and scattered across the garage floor. What do you What are you hoping you're going to be able to put together there? What What are you going to be driving this uh, uh, next year or so? <laughs> well, you know, I, um, I hope to be doing more uh work with with my buddy ross james and we have our our guitar band cosmic twang um which is our kind of it is what it sounds like and it's pretty full-on rock and roll experience with country undertones and psychedelic overtones um <laughs> <laughs> and um i'll bet you there'll be some playing with nikki bloom I've been work, and the three of us have been working together a lot over the last few years. Um, so those are those are sort of priorities, and of course, any plan that's possible that comes up uh, down at Terrapin Crossroads and with Phil Lesh, and um, you know, that's just been such an extraordinary situation for me over the last six or seven years. Well, with this last year being a little weird. <laughs> um, and then I'm just continuing to kind of work on my, you know, I'm going to do my live stream. You can tune in every Monday at 4:20 on my Facebook page, Scott Law Music, or a Facebook page called Dead Headland. Yeah. And in the meantime, I'm just working on tunes and be I'll be leading some, you know, I've got a few outdoor uh open air safe gigs that are kind of coming together in the summertime and also I'll be out there leading the lineup a little bit both you know, acoustic and electric, I imagine. And uh, doing some of my stuff and doing just a lot of the repertoire that that uh, we all love. Excellent. The, so uh, is there, well, I was gonna say, have you heard anything about when Terrapin uh, might be able to open or when they might be able to start letting people back in or anything? Well, they, they just started um, oh. last, I think last week, I think a few uh, pod, outdoor pod shows. Um, have happened. Um, I think Midnight North played there uh, this weekend as well, which is Graham's band, Graham Lesh, Phil's son. Um, and, uh, and they're wonderful, check them out. And, uh, you know, I think like as with everything, it's just things are just gonna, they're cautiously coming online. I'm not speaking for them, but I'm just imagining, right. you know, things are gonna uh, slowly now uh, start to get better and hopefully the data uh, I mean this me personally like as we're watching all this you know we're in a really interesting time right now right we're in between worlds yeah we are and we're really it's like this is uh, you know we're still watching this all unfold <laughs> so I think we're gonna have a better time this summer than we had last summer though I think Ooh. that's <laughs> shouldn't be hard <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm I'm pretty sure 
what no. what's that what's that lesh phil lesh experience like for you it's got to be completely surreal um and yet you have to be completely yeah. present it, it's weird i mean it, it when i stop and think about it it's way weirder than when it's actually when we're just rolling i mean music yeah. is sort of the natural habitat for us all so um you know it was really interesting to be around terrapin during 2015 during fare thee well during the 50th anniversary and to be working i mean i i have never physically worked harder in my life in music like I was playing so much and it just all was flashing by. Um, but it was really, a, it had it, the whole thing, like the, just because of the dedication to the music and to the audience and uh, um, the experiences that we've been able as musicians to have, you know, it's like, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. Like there's no, I, st I still, I mean, you know, the last year I've, you know, been sitting here at home most of the time. And I just think, did that really happen? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, it, it, I mean, it, 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 it's gotta be a, it, it, there is something about being around real celebrity like that, that every once in a while, you just kind of look at yourself and go, how is this possible? I mean, I do, I, I, you know, it, it, there's just times I'm around somebody and I just go, really? Well, <laughs> it's, really? It's, in, it's interesting, you know, I mean, all of that is really interesting because, you know, there's, there's a lot of you, you, you can't think about yourself. Like, I, I just had to, you know, you just have to think about the music and go. And there's a reason that you wind up in certain places. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. for whatever, you know, and and the interesting thing too is like, I mean, I was just, I mean, I was steeped in this music and in the flow of that music. Like, that's how I learned to play. And, you know, I mean, I, I really, it's like for me, Jerry Garcia was a conduit. He was sort of the the, headwaters of so much like that subsequently i've studied you know and and really gotten into right but that phrasing and that tone on electric guitar like that was it man and i got i had this really weird i don't know if you know about this scenario where i i i had the opportunity to play with phil in 2005 um to play Garcia's Wolf guitar, mm -hmm. um, the Garcia's guitar named Wolf. That yeah, was yeah. The early Alembic Duggar when, um, and uh, it was in that moment that I was like playing with him, playing Eyes of the World, you know. And I was like, oh my god, it totally makes sense why Garcia plays the way he does because this is the way this guy plays. It was so weird. It just like, it was just like, you know oh these guys grew up playing together <laughs> you know because things that i would hear to play or my interpretation of the phrasing or whatever 
felt so familiar with Phil there. And it was really an interesting experience. Wow. So I don't, I, I, I don't know. I just like that. That music feels really secondary, second nature to me. And uh, so I'm just glad I've got a chance to be around to do it. I mean, Terrapin Crossroads for me wasn't all Grateful Dead music. It was that. And it was a crash course and getting sharp on that book um, as sharp as I could in a short amount of time. And you realize like that music's deep. It's not it, it it sounds like you're it sounds it sounds simpler than it is like there are details that must be you know taken care of and uh but also it's such a listening thing man it's like just you're listening and finding your spot in the weave you know and and that's what we all like that's what i grew up and that's what we learned from those guys and they were learning it from everything that they were listening to yeah so that's how the music, you know, the music keeps growing. Yeah. I am going to step out and recommend a couple of books. Do you know about the inner game of tennis? Yes. Okay. Subsequently, the inner game of music. <laughs> ah. The inner game of tennis is better. If you know about the inner game of tennis, I would highly recommend that anybody watching or listening read Timothy Galloway's Inner Game of Tennis because it will translate to your music. Cool. In such a way of understanding that you, it, it's, it, it, it's exactly what you've been talking about, of just being there and just being a part and being in that weave and being in that, um, in that moment. And you're not telling your hand. Yeah. You're not telling your hand to play this riff. Your hand is playing this riff. And when you think about it, you can't do it. But you, all, you already know exactly, you know, what to do there. So did we lose me? Did we lose me? I'm for a second. Lost you just for a second there. Okay. I think I... <laughs> all right well we'll put a link for that in the uh, thing as well yeah, yeah or at least I, a mention of it yeah i i uh, um i recommend it highly and it's it's uh um it's exactly what you've been talking about today yeah that that uh that sounds like it i do i think i read i think i read the inner game of tennis there was other isn't there a, a skiing one there's three books maybe it was a skiing one I, uh, that I read uh, way, way back. But yeah, I mean, all of that stuff, like the listening and um, I mean, the, the, the finding your space in the music and finding your space in the sonic spectrum. I mean, you know, the things we learn from, from uh, uh, watching the great guitar players that work together, you know, it's like everything from know when to play power chords together, you know, <laughs> to know when to stay out of each other's way rhythmically or in terms of range uh, yeah. or, you know, tone, like making sure that you're getting your tones working together. And, you know, like we're talking about with acoustic guitars, that can be, you know, instrument to instrument or pick or whatever, but, but also with electric guitars and especially playing in like, 
you know, these, these kinds of contexts. Um, and playing different music. I mean, playing at Terrapin Crossroads and like what I've been doing with this sort of survey of all this music, like songs that I've run across or sang or played or appreciated and thought would be fun to put in the appreciation pile, uh, you know, like playing that with a rotation of about 40 musicians, 40 or 50 musicians, you know, come, it was like just an extraordinary run of time wow. that I got to do that. And for the audiences going there, and you know, children could come to the bar. I mean, when I was a kid, I couldn't see rock and roll music, you know, with yeah. my parents. Yeah. You know, but like a Terrapin, you could do that. So we'll see how it all goes when things open back up. I'm looking forward to the whole world being a better place. Yeah, you know, like I, I believe getting, our, getting ourselves back to playing some music. I, I believe that that we will see a brighter side on the other side. You know, it'll yeah. be a better day. Scott, you've been unbelievably gracious with your time. Yes, oh. thank you so much. That's thank, yeah. thank you so much. Thank you guys. Thanks for having me. It's an honor, and uh, you know, um, I, well, I, uh, yeah. We'll be, in, we'll be in touch about, about links and we'll post all this stuff up on the, in where it's at and uh, get on, get on Facebook at 420 on uh, Monday afternoon and <laughs> throw, throw a little, throw a little toward the tip jar and uh, all right. Have so a, you guys might end up getting me on Facebook. We'll get you there, Ted. So have a fantastic afternoon, Scott. Um, thank you you guys thanks. as well thanks so much for having me thanks very much take care all right bye. take care bye 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 we hope you enjoyed this installment of the Santa Cruz Coffee Break for more music related fun please join the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum at scgcpf or santacruzguitarplayers.com if you have any questions or possible podcast topics please contact us if you have a product or service that you feel would be of value to our listeners, please consider adding your support and keeping the coffee pot on. Contact us for more information. We ask that you hit the like, follow, bell, or bookmark buttons so we can keep you informed of upcoming podcast episodes. We hope you enjoyed Santa Cruz Coffee Break. Now it's time to go play your guitar.